my syllabus with me, and so when I went to give the reading assignment, it turned out that I didn't have it. And when I um, announced what our topic for discussion would be tonight, I was mistaken about it. So <laughs> it was all around a mistake not to have that syllabus with me. Um, let me give you what the reading assignment would have been for tonight for those of you who are doing the reading and would like to, um, to make it up. The reading for tonight would be in Theonomy, chapters 8 to 12 and chapter 15, as well as Appendix 1. And then in John Murray's book, Principles of Conduct, pages 19 to 26 and chapter 8. Now, all of that reading assignment has to do with the subjects which you see up here on the um, screen, uh, audiophorus, situationism, and hierarchicalism, or if you will, liberty and love. And then uh, our proper subject for tonight was not to get into the commandments. I'd forgotten that we have a full unit on social ethics as well, and so we'll be talking about social ethics tonight. And the reading for that is found in Theonomy, chapter 16 to 23, and chapter 25, along with appendix, uh, appendices 2, 3, and 4. Now, the fourth appendix deals with Meredith Klein's argument found in the structure of biblical authority, pages 94 to 110, pages 154 to 171. Let me say that again. Theonomy, chapters 16 through 23, as well as chapter 25, and appendices 2, 3, and 4. The fourth one dealing with Klein's structure of biblical authority, pages 94 to 110 and pages 154 to 171. Um, also, you could read in Rush Dooney's book, The Institutes of Biblical Law, pages 1 to 14, and pages 723 to 730. And then finally, in Carl F.H. Henry's book, Aspects of Christian Social Ethics, pages 146 to 171. What was Rush Dooney's pages again? Rush Dooney, pages 1 to 14, pages 723 to 730. All right, now that's for this week. For next week, now that we're on the subject, let's get it taken care of. Next week, we will begin the study of the commandments of God, and I'll give a lecture on how to use the law of God and commandments 1 and 2. And what I'd like you to do is to read John Murray's book, Chapter 2, and I'd like you to read in Rush Dooney, uh, Institutes of Biblical Law, his chapters on commandments 1 and 2. Those are not the chapter numbers, by the way, but... Uh, whatever chapters they are dealing with commandments 1 and 2. And as we go through the commandments, the reading assignment in Rush Dooney will be uniform. Just read what he has to say about the commandments that we're going to be discussing, and then I'll add a little bit from John Murray as well every week. Okay. So tonight's subject is going to be uh, the law of God again with some of its connections, uh, law and liberty, law and love, and law in conflict, which is to say law and law. And then we'll turn to social ethics, and we have a lot of a fairly controversial nature, but uh, a very interesting nature for us to consider tonight. Uh, Christ and culture, the battle between humanism and theism, the various attitudes that Christians take toward Christ and culture, uh, the question of whether the cultural mandate or the evangelical mandate are prior, uh, which is more important than the other, and then what is the standard for social ethics, and having uh, surveyed those questions, I want to turn to the tortured question of the relationship of church and state and explain what the separation between the two means. And then I want to discuss distributive justice, the idea that the state should be doling out benefits and benevolence, uh, should be do engaging in works of financial charity. 
And uh, then finally, the question of the enforcement of morals, which is perhaps the most important. Uh, there are a lot of important questions, but the most pressing question of our day for Christians is whether they believe in the enforcement of morals. And I'll be discussing that in light of the whole issue of homosexuality and whether there ought to be laws against it in the state. And then we'll come to the question of capital punishment and if time allows, the question of war. So social ethics will have a lot, I think, to keep our attention. And I'd like to get on to that very soon. So let me finish up our unit on the law of God. At the end of last week, I had um, taken up the various criticisms that um, were popular against the idea that the full law of God is binding today. And I also asked you what criticisms you had heard that I didn't take up in the lecture, and we had quite a discussion of that. And we came to the end of our unit, and my conclusion, just so you can see where we're picking up uh, from last week, my conclusion is that we must go to the law of God and ethics, the necessity of God's law, all of God's law, that is its unity, and only God's law, its sufficiency. What I'd like to do now is to look at some of the pitfalls that uh, people run into when they try to dispute the law of God and its binding authority on their life. Uh, it so happens that these are also pitfalls to disputing with my book, Theonomy and Christian Ethics, but uh, it's far more serious to dispute the law of God than it is to dispute any human being's book. Um, I, I just point out the connection because what my book is arguing is that all of God's law must be followed. Let's look at certain pitfalls that people fall into when they try to dispute that thesis. The first is arbitrariness. That is, the first pitfall to disputing any law of God as binding on your life is just to be arbitrary and have no reason at all. That's to say, I don't have a reason, I don't need a reason. Of course, what that amounts to is an attitude of non-accountability. That's to say, I need not offer a reason for my conviction here. I'm not accountable for that conviction. I can simply, arbitrarily, without scruples, come to that conviction, without a principle underlying it. The Bible has a lot to say about this attitude of non-accountability. If you want to look at Proverbs 12, verse 15, or Proverbs 13, uh, verse 16, or Proverbs 14, verses 15 and 16. Uh, for the sake of time, I'll only look at one of these. Proverbs 14, verses 15 and 16. The simple believeth every word, but the prudent man looketh well to his going. So wise man feareth and departeth from evil, but the fool bears himself insolently and is confident. Rather strong words. The man who is so insolent and so confident that he can just reject any law he wants without giving a reason for it, the Bible calls a fool. The simple believes every word. Okay? A simple-minded person doesn't think about why he believes what he does. He just believes everything, you know, arbitrarily. But the prudent will look to his ways. That is, the prudent will look into matters. He will uh, consider why he does what he does and what he's doing. The wise man will fear the Lord and depart from evil, but the fool, being insolent, will be confident in his own opinions. Well, now, a second pitfall in disputing with the law of God is rationalization. Okay? Arbitrariness means you have no reason at all for your opinion. Rationalization means you come up with a reason after the fact. Okay? After the fact. You seek a reason to support your opinion after you've already made up your mind. Okay, you make up your mind, obviously this law in the Old Testament doesn't apply to me. Now I'm going to go and find a reason why it shouldn't apply to me. And I have sometimes humorously described rationalization as the attitude, there must be some reason why I'm right, and I'm going to go find it. 
Proverbs 18.13 speaks against this kind of rationalization when it says, He that giveth an answer before he heareth, it is folly and shame unto him. That is, a man who answers before he hears, you know, the evidence one way or another, the man who gives an answer and comes to a conclusion before he has his reason for it, is a fool. Uh, by the way, that's not just name-calling. When the Proverbs describe somebody or some attitude, uh, some action is foolish or a fool, uh, that's very strong language, saying that uh, one falls under the disapprobation of God. That one is not just, in, we might kiddingly say, acting you know, uh, in a silly fashion. He's being foolish. But uh, he comes under the severe disapprobation of God. For you see, fools despise wisdom and instruction, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And so those who are called fools are in a, in a very serious condition indeed. Well, a third way you can um, fall when you try to dispute with the theonomic thesis is traditionalism. That is, resting in the judgment of some respected teacher or resting in the judgment of your ecclesiastical environment or judging what you should do or believe from the statistical popularity of the opinion. Those are all versions of traditionalism. Now, I suppose that if there is one besetting sin of modern Presbyterianism, sad to say, it is traditionalism. And if there is one besetting sin of all of us in this room, it is, in fact, traditionalism. That's because we don't want to be left alone with the Word of God to make our judgments. We want the security of knowing that there are a lot of people who will stand around us and say yes when we believe these things. We want some respected teacher to uh, stand behind us. It's amazing to me to watch the number of times I get into a conversation about the law of God today and how the conversation eventually whittles down to what did John Calvin believe? Or what is the meaning of the Westminster Confession? Or what was the Puritan attitude? Or what did Kuiper think? Or something of that nature. As though that had any bearing on the question whatsoever. And I do not hesitate to say and I'm willing to defend publicly for anybody who wants to dispute it, that that has no bearing whatsoever on the subject. It is completely, logically, theologically, and ethically irrelevant what any past person said. It's likewise irrelevant what I say. Because, you see, the issue is not an issue of human authority. It's a question of sola scriptura. And throughout history, you will find that there have been plenty of theologians who would mouth the words of sola scriptura and make that a banner for their activity in theology. And yet, when all is said and done, their arguments and their considerations and the whole weight of their conversation is tied up with who said what, when, and why. Traditionalism is a sin according to the Bible. In Matthew, the 15th chapter, verses 3 and then verses 6 to 9, Jesus condemns the Pharisees because of their traditions. They follow their traditions, what the scribes say, rather than what the Word of God says. You see, traditionalism is really deference, is giving deference to a non-argued conclusion. And that deference to a non-argued conclusion belongs only to God. It doesn't belong to John Calvin, and it doesn't belong to Luther, and it doesn't belong to me. Nobody has the right to have his conclusions accepted just because of who he is. Only God has that prerogative. And so this pitfall... Uh, to disputing with the law of God overlooks the finitude of man, it overlooks the fallibility of man, it overlooks, in fact, the sin which can be found in one's environment, in one's church, in the majority, or in one's favored teacher. 
All right, now there's another class of pitfalls into which a person can fall when he disputes with the Word of God, and that's that he can appeal to generality over against detail. Okay, uh, let's say we're, we're talking about the law, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, okay, a fairly controversial one. And somebody says, I don't think we have to follow that law today. All right, now one pitfall he can fall into is that of arbitrariness, not offering a reason. Another one is he can say, that's what I believe and I'm going to find a reason for it. And then he goes up, he tries to, you see, bolster some doctrine of church-state separation or Old Testament, New Testament separation, something like that that will give credence to his view after he's already come to that conclusion. Or he can say, you see, uh, John Calvin never believed that sort of thing or B.B. Um, uh, Warfield didn't believe that sort of thing. He can appeal to tradition or to his favorite teacher. But let's say that a person avoids all those pitfalls. And he says, well, I believe that in a general way we have to follow the law of God, but we shouldn't be tied down to the details. That is, we are to follow the law of God in general, but we don't have to follow the particular details of the law. What's the problem with that? Well, in the first place, I have no idea what it means. I have no idea what it means. By the way, when I make statements like that, it's not for rhetorical purposes. I'm speaking philosophically. I don't know what it means to say you're going to follow generality instead of detail. What is the standard? What is the criterion of continuity and discontinuity in this argument? That is, what is the mark of requisite generality that preserves the law from the Old Testament into the New? I mean, what is it? What are you looking for? I mean, you, you go to the market and, and your wife has sent you there looking for frozen peas, you know? And you know what the mark of frozen peas is. You know how to find frozen peas among all the items that are in the market. Now, what I want to know is, what is the mark of generality? What is, what is, is there, is there, you know, some kind of function? Is it some kind of wording? Is, what is it that tells you that a commandment is sufficiently general that it can be kept in the New Testament? In Matthew 5, verse 18, Jesus would not put up with any of these arguments over generality and detail. For he said, every jot and tittle of the law is binding until heaven and earth pass away. In Luke 11, verse 42, when Jesus condemns the Pharisees for overlooking the weightier matters of the law, he does not condemn them for their detailed obedience. He condemns them for getting things out of perspective. He says, this you ought to have done without leaving the other undone. John Murray puts it well when he says, Too often the person imbued with meticulous concern for the ordinances of God and conscientious regard for the minutia of God's commandments is judged as the legalist, while the person who is not bothered by details is judged to be the practical person who exemplifies the liberty of the gospel. Here Jesus is reminding us of the same great truth which he declares elsewhere, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. The criterion of our standing in the kingdom of God and a reward in the age to come is nothing else than meticulous observance of the commandments of God in the initial details of their prescription and the earnest inculcation of such observance on the part of others. Jesus said, Therefore, whoever shall break the least of these commandments and teach men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, another pitfall people can fall into is when all reasoning fails you, okay, you've tried all these other things and you haven't gotten very far, when all reasoning fails, and when exegesis offers no help, then you can appeal to tenor versus text as a last resort. 
the difference between Numbers 4 and 5 here is that there are people who say the general commandments we keep, but we don't keep the detailed commandments, all right? We haven't found any, reason, any way to understand that or any biblical support for it. Now, the fifth uh, pitfall is that, well, when we try to understand the commandments, um, no, when we try to understand whether we're going to keep the commandments of the Old Testament, you have to take into account the general thrust of the New Testament over against the general thrust of the Old Testament as you have to have a kind of a feeling for the flow of redemptive history. And when once somebody has this feeling for this flow of redemptive history, then he knows that he's not to keep certain Old Testament commandments. That's why I say, when reasoning fails you and exegesis offers no support, then you go to personal feeling. I mean tenor. The tenor of the alleged tenor of the Bible versus the text of the Bible. As the history of theology will evidence for you, though, it's just when men are willing to depart from Scripture's explicit statements. When men want to depart from Scripture's explicit statements in favor of their generalized and undeniably subjective assessments of the implicit message or meaning of the Bible, the doctrinal deviation begins to cut its very wide swath. Of course, it's always amazing to me how the imagined transtextual tenor of the Bible or the transtextual tenor of the New Testament always seems to correlate so nicely and exactly with the theological milieu and the ecclesiastical background and personal opinions of the one who is assessing that tenor. This isn't meant to be tongue-in-the-cheek. I can say it directly. Those who talk about the tenor of the Bible over against its explicit statements are in fact projecting their own background and convictions into the Bible and then reading it back like from a mirror. If you read it into the Bible, then it'll be there to be found when you want to take it out. One's own predispositions and the ideological status quo are all too easily read into that not so clearly defined and defended tenor of the Bible. I think there's a sober lesson here for contemporary evangelicals and reformed teachers. So sober that I dare say if we don't learn it in the next 20 years, by the end of the 20th century, the reformed church is going to be in serious trouble. It will be salt that has lost its savor. So there's a sober lesson here for contemporary evangelicals and reformed teachers. That which we disapprobate in unorthodox theologians is all too easily, all too unwittingly pressed into service against teaching that's uncongenial to our preconceived opinions as well. Isn't that just what bothers us about liberals and neo-orthodox people? Is that they depart from the explicit statements of the text of scripture, they depart from exegesis in favor of their feelings, and yet we do the same thing when we resort to tenor over against text. And until somebody can tell me what that vague and thoroughly unbiblical phrase, the flow of redemptive history means, it has no argumentative weight. Now, on the flow of redemptive history, does that mean that we don't believe in progressive revelation? No, it doesn't mean that we don't begin, don't, it does not mean that we deny progressive revelation. What we deny is that progressive revelation shows us a progressing God. That is, that progressive revelation reveals to us a God whose moral standards are in evolution. God shows us more and more of himself. He does not show us himself more and more changing. That is such an elementary theological mistake that I'm sorry that it even has to be addressed publicly. But I suppose some of you in the room know that it does. Well, what must be done in order to dispute or reject the theonomic thesis about all of God's law? I'm going to make it very easy on, on those who don't like this thesis. I'm going, to, I'm going to lay out, you see, the groundwork for how you can dispute with it. Okay? First of all, personal feeling is too weak. All right, so over here, you've got to avoid 
the shoals of personal feeling. You can't say, I just don't think this is a very good law to keep, or this seems harsh to me, or uh, my feeling for the flow of redemptive history doesn't allow for that, or it's, not, it's too detailed, it's not general enough for the New Testament. I mean, none of that will work. What you've got to produce is a non-arbitrary principle. All right? We need a principle of discrimination. Sorry about that. A non-arbitrary principle of discrimination, which is scripturally grounded. A principle that will clearly and in a non-circular fashion distinguish between valid and invalid laws. Don't decide which laws you want to keep and then look for a principle to support them. Okay? That's rationalization. Don't go asking what your culture says or what your favorite teacher says or what the status quo might be. That's traditionalism. Don't just have some vague thing, well, the general commands but not the detailed ones. No, we want, and not some feeling for the text, I mean feeling of the tenor of the Bible over against the text. We want a textually based principle whereby the Bible shows us how to discriminate between valid and invalid laws, not personal feeling. All right? On the other hand, that principle has got to avoid the other shore of dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is too strong a principle because then Matthew 5, verses 17 to 19, whatever its message might be, is emptied of its, um, its thrust. Uh, Jesus, in some sense, is upholding every jot and tittle of the Old Testament law, and dispensationalism does not adequately deal with that. 1 John 2, verse 4 says that if we say we know him, keep not his commandments, then we are liars and the truth is not in us. Okay, so in some way you've got to preserve the law of God. All right, Matthew 5, 1 John 2, and all the rest. But you, according, I mean, the opponent here wants to keep the law of God, but not all the laws of God. Okay, so once you give up dispensationalism as too strong, so that you are going to preserve the law in some sense, then you've got to have that principle by which you can determine which laws are valid and which aren't. So now if any of the opponents of theonomy can get up between those two shoals, then they will have done their job. You see how easy it is, and then you see how hard it is. Uh, let's forget traditionalism, arbitrariness, rationalization, appeals to generality, appeals to the tenor and all that. Let's just state the principle. How do you know which laws are valid and which laws are not? Okay, any questions about the pitfalls to trying to throw out any of God's laws? Would anybody like to try a principle, just for the sake of illustration tonight? A principle by which you can keep some laws and reject others? Well, if you have a principle, or if you're kind of working one out roughly in your mind, I'm going to give you some material to test it on in a few minutes here when we get to social ethics. I'm going to suggest a long string of commandments from the Old Testament, and I want you to be able to say at what point you say no further than that. We'll keep those laws that you've mentioned, but not those that you're coming to. All right? I want to see if you know how to sort the apples out. If you believe, I mean, anybody who's not a theonomist, if I can put it bluntly, has got to be an apple sorter. He's got to be able to go to the Bible, the Old Testament, look at all these laws as apples and say, what are the good ones and what are the bad ones? And it won't do you any good to say you don't think that, that we have to, you know, pay attention to all those apples if you don't know how to throw the bad ones out. And so I'm going to ask you what your principle of selectivity is, what your principle of discrimination is later on. Well, let's come to, uh, yes, Dale. Would you say that most of the principles adduced against the army tend to be varying degrees of milder or stronger of dispensationalism? Most of the popular ones definitely are. Yeah. Even in the reform camp. Oh, yes, even in the reform camp. We have that strange hybrid today, which I think has to be called di reform dispensationalism. Um, 
there are even those who can use the language of covenant theology and produce a dispensational effect. Meredith Klein, I think, has worked out an ingenious way of using the language of covenant theology and yet coming up with a dispensational conclusion. In the end, I think theological systems should be judged as to their function and content, not according to their vocabulary. And so even though he uses the vocabulary of a covenant theologian, uh, I think he is, in fact, a reformed dispensationalist. He, f he thinks that we live under a new covenant, which is to say a new canon, and therefore we have a new polity. Well, that's contrary to the whole thrust of um, what is historical covenant theology. Now, obviously, the fact that it's historical doesn't make it true. But I'm making the point that in terms of schools of thought, you even have people who are crossing from one school to another on separate questions and retaining their old vocabulary. This is not a very good day for theological debate for people who are unwilling to be analytical in their approach. We live in a day of uh, vocabulary confusion and when all said and done, a lot of sloganizing. And I suppose you can tell tonight, uh, after working all day long on some of these problems, I'm tired of the slogans. No more slogans. Other questions before I go on? All right. If we see that the law of God is binding today, which is, in essence, what I've been arguing for a while now, we want to look at the law and certain other questions. And the first one to be taken up tonight is the question of law and liberty. I mean, if we really are to follow the law of God, what has come of Christian liberty? In particular, what about the question of adiaphora? Well, what is our liberty according as Christians? According to the Bible, our liberty is from the bondage of sin. You'll find that in John chapter 8 and Romans chapter 6. Our liberty is from the curse of sin, Galatians chapter 3. In fact, our freedom is a freedom to obey the law of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, Romans 8 verse 4. So what is Christian liberty? It's liberty from the bondage of sin, from the curse of sin, and a liberty to obey the law of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so what our freedom is. The question then comes up, that's what I think is of primary importance, is to see that liberty for the Christian means liberty to obey God. But the question comes up, what, um, what becomes of spontaneity? What becomes of openness and creativity in Christian living? You know, what, what comes of the, um, you know, doing things just out of your own inner nature, not because of some external law binding and all that? What, what becomes of Christian spontaneity? Where is that liberty of the Christian that has been the battle cry of the Protestant Reformation? Well, I think there's a lot of mistaken ideas running around as to this battle cry of the Protestant Reformation about Christian liberty. Christian liberty was not this sense of openness and spontaneity and just kind of, um, you know, do your own thing, different strokes for different folks and all that sort of thing that our, our modern culture has. The battle cry of the Protestant Reformation, the real issue in the Protestant Reformation, was liberty from the ethical and religious ordinances of men. Liberty from the ethical ordinances of men. According to the Christian who believes the law of God is his moral standard, ethical and religious norms have a sublime independence from all human opinion. Well, once you can get free of the shackles of traditionalism, there is, in fact, a sublime independence and a free, if you want, a, a feeling of freedom. That freedom is freedom from the uh, choking out opinions of men so that you'd be free to follow the word of God. Ethical and religious norms have a sublime independence from human opinion. I just want you to think of Moses standing before Pharaoh. Or think of Elijah standing before Ahab. 
Think of Elijah dealing with the priest of Baal, or Isaiah standing before Ahaz, the king. Think of Paul before Agrippa, or Paul before Felix, Paul before Festus. You see, those are free men. Those are free men who can pit the word of God against any outside authority, against the authority of the religious establishment, against the authority of human tradition, against the authority of any human device or function. As Peter declared, we must obey God rather than men. Christians belong to another kingdom, you see. They belong to another city. And sometimes their liberation makes them very lonely people. It's hard to be a lonely person today. I'm seeing that uh, just in terms of those who are willing to put aside establishment pressures and, uh, and take a stand for their convictions, those who are not worried about, uh, uh, say, the politics of the church and, uh, and who can keep you out of a pulpit or who might be able to get you into a pulpit or um, even uh, you know, whose piece of paper might help you in terms of your future occupation. It's very hard to be lonely people. But the Bible tells us that we should see ourselves as strangers and as pilgrims here. It ought not to be a strange thing to us that people consider us odd or that they try to oppose us. But I tell you, genuine religious freedom is found in the experience of a Moses or an Elijah or a Paul or a Peter. Free men who could pit the word of God against any outside authority and take the consequences. We must obey God rather than men. Of course, that doesn't mean that we aren't subject to the ordinances of men for the Lord's sake. But notice that the Bible never teaches us to be subject to the ordinances of men except in those areas where God empowers the ordinances of men. Only in those areas where God grants authority to these men. And never, never in the sense of an ultimate authority even at that. God never gives ultimate authority to the state or ultimate authority to the church or ultimate authority to parents. He never gives ultimate authority to our society or to personal opinions or anything like that. The authority of all these things and ordinances of men is only to the extent that God grants them authority and empowers them. And so, we want to imitate the freedom of Christ. Those of us who believe in the law of God, we want to imitate the freedom of Christ who displayed before Pilate that good testimony and confession. Christ, of course, had the freedom to show a majestic silence even before Herod so that even when Herod would demand an answer of him, Christ could stand without a word. I tell you, that's the model of Christian freedom. And I would today that there were more who longed for that model of freedom than this idea of Christian openness and spontaneity. Now, there is a third sense, however, in which we need to speak of Christian liberty. We've talked about freedom to do God's requirements. We've talked from, about liberty from the bondage of men. But now we come to that third sense of freedom, which is called adiaphora, and uh, a good deal needs to be said about this. What does adiaphora mean in the Greek? Indifferent, actually it's the neuter plural, things indifferent. Ah, um, without, diaphora means difference, without a difference, without cutting a difference, without uh, a distinct, uh, drawing a distinction. All right, now do we all believe that there are such things as adiaphora, things indifferent, things which are morally indifferent? Well, there's a real ambiguity in that, right? In the literal sense, no thing can be moral anyway. I mean, pins are not moral, and cars are not moral, and you know, stalks of corn are not moral. Things can't be moral. Only persons are moral or immoral. 
And so in that sense, everything is adiaphora. Everything is morally indifferent. Is marijuana morally indifferent? Some, some people have the freedom to <laughs> say yes or no. After all that about having the boldness of your convictions and everything. Yes, marijuana is morally indifferent. It's the use of marijuana that is either moral or immoral. Okay, so forget things. What do we mean by adiaphora then? Well, some people would say adiaphora pertains to those actions which are indifferent in God's sight. All right? Can somebody give me an example of an action which is indifferent in God's sight? We're not talking about a thing now, you know, like a stalk of corn or a blade of grass or a pin. What actions are morally indifferent in God's eyes? Doesn't the Bible teach that we're going to be held accountable for every deed done in our body? Every action will be called into account? Isn't whatever is not of faith sin? Isn't it true that we're to do everything to the glory of God? There are no actions which are strictly morally indifferent in God's sight. Well, somebody says, what I mean here is adiaphora pertains to actions which the Bible says nothing about. Actions concerning which the Bible is totally silent. Well, I guess that's a little bit better, except that the Bible's not totally silent about any action. Just because everything's supposed to be done to the glory of God. So that doesn't get us out of the bind. Well, what do we mean then by adiaphora? I mean, we're all supposed to believe in adiaphora. We can't decide what the definition of adiaphora. It's not things indifferent. It's not actions which are indifferent. It's not actions about which the Bible is silent. Well, how about actions which are right in some situations but wrong in others? Well, that's not very helpful because an act is not indifferent then. It's just that it's either right or it's wrong depending on the circumstance. So it's not indifferent at all. Okay, now you're getting a little frustrated and you say, well then adiaphora is, um, adiaphora pertains to a choice between two good things rather than a choice between a good and a bad thing. That is, an, uh, a decision that falls into the category of adiaphora is the decision between an apple or an orange for lunch today. Okay, well I think that's better, but perhaps the best way to put it is that adiaphora pertains to actions which scripture neither commands nor prohibits. That isn't to say scripture is silent about that action, because every action has to be done in faith, in love, to the glory of God. But the specific action is neither commanded nor prohibited in the Bible. The Bible doesn't command or prohibit uh, taking oranges to work, you know, and eating in your sack lunch. All right, now to properly understand adiaphora in this sense requires that we recognize two fundamental principles in biblical ethics. Okay, two principles have to be seen if you're going to understand adiaphora. First, the ubiquity of ethics. What does ubiquity mean? Omnipresence <laughs> of ethics. That means that ethics pertains to everything. Okay, and the second thing is the sufficiency of scripture for ethical decisions. With these two principles, we can then understand adiaphora. According to God's word, everything a man does is a moral action. It's done in conformity to God's standards or it's in violation of God's standards. A man's outward behavior may not be explicitly discussed, that is a particular act of having an apple or an orange, but the motivation and the contemplated end of that behavior is all, always governed by or done in violation to certain universal moral dictates that the Bible lays down. Therefore, whatever a man does is governed by or under the direction of God's revealed will. Every decision, every act is ethically qualified. But on the other hand, now, Scripture also teaches that all moral direction needed for a Christian is found in the Bible, the sufficiency of Scripture. A Christian need not be subject to extra-biblical rules or laws or commandments because God alone is Lord of the conscience and he's the final judge of morality. Everything that God expects of men can be found in or can be derived from God's self-revelation in the Scriptures. Thus, the 
Christian is never without the ethical direction he needs for any situation that arises. And he can take a decided stand against those commands of men which contradict the moral direction of God, as Peter did to the Sanhedrin. We must obey God rather than men. In 1 Timothy 3.17, Paul writes to Timothy that God-breathed scripture provides perfect and full equipping for the spiritual service and godliness required of the Lord. Therefore, the Christian sees the Bible as sufficient to give him normative moral direction and rules. Let's rehearse now what we've said. Everything done by man is ethically qualified, and all the ethical standards can be sufficiently found in Scripture. Within that framework, we can see in what sense the ought offer are things indifferent, and yet how they still have a serious moral issue pertaining to them. Now, the question of how to deal with ought offer becomes acute when sincere Christians come to different conclusions with respect to a particular action. Okay, now, this is where the rubber hits the road. Okay? We agree that the ubiquity of ethics, sufficiency of scripture, but we come as sincere Christians to different conclusions about some action. Now, to gain the scriptural principles and direction for these areas of the things indifferent, it's appropriate to go to those places in God's word that deal with that issue in its most intense form. And that will be found in Romans, the 14th chapter, 1 Corinthians chapters 8, 9, and 10, and 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. I'd like to just summarize um, what you find in these three passages. I have extended notes that time won't allow me to go into. In um, Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, you'll find the following problems addressed by Paul. The first problem is what Paul calls weakness of faith. He speaks of those who are weak as to faith. In 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, uh, the weakness of faith is called a lack of knowledge. He speaks of those who lack knowledge. Okay, what is, what is the problem in Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10? Can somebody remind us all? Meats offered to idols, right. Do Christians have the freedom to eat meats offered to idols? You see, certain meats would have been given by pagans uh, to their idols, and then their priests would sell them off in the marketplace. And they'd, and they'd finally show up in the meat market where just any common person could buy those meats. Now, meats that have been offered to idols and now are open for sale, can Christians eat such meats? And there, were a, there was a party of Christians in the church in Rome and in the church in Corinth at least, if not elsewhere, that said that uh, it was wrong to eat such meats, that it was immoral to eat meats offered to idols. There was another party that said, no, it doesn't make any difference at all. Now, we don't have problem over meats offered to idols today, but we do have other problems pertaining to adiaphora, perhaps um, smoking or uh, drinking or something like that, although I'm going to come back and say something further about adiaphora pertaining to drinking in a minute. Well, one of the problems Paul finds in his weakness of faith, he speaks of one of the parties in these churches as being weak as to faith. Okay, another problem is uh, attitudes toward one another or conscientiousness. Paul also sees a problem in this argument between believers as to their attitudes being displayed toward each other. And then finally, there's the problem of the stumbling block. He sees that some are becoming stumbling blocks to others. All right. What are the solutions to these three problems? Again, I'm summarizing here. I wish I could go through the notes in ex you know, extensive detail. But in both Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, Paul says that the lack of knowledge, a weakness of faith, is to be solved, the solution is to be found, 
What are the solutions to these three problems? Again, I'm summarizing here. I wish I could go through the notes in ex- you know, extensive detail. But in both Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, Paul says that the lack of knowledge or weakness of faith is to be solved, the solution is to be found, and that Paul is pro-unscrupulous, or if you will, Paul sides with the strong. Okay, now the, the scrupulous party is the party that has scruples against eating the meat. When Paul describes those people who have scruples as being weak in faith, he's obviously siding with those who are strong as to faith. When he calls those who do not think that you can eat such meats lacking in knowledge, he's obviously saying those who are knowledgeable of the Lord's will see that it's all right to eat them. So, Paul is pro-unscrupulous. Paul sides with the stronger, not with the weaker. Already you begin to see some of the problems with modern arguments in Adiaphora. Since somebody is weak in faith, we're supposed to side with him. Paul says, no, just because he's weak in faith, you don't side with him. You side with the one who's strong in faith. All right? Now, how about this attitude toward each other? The scrupulous party despises the unscrupulous party, and the unscrupulous party judges the scrupulous party. In both of these passages, Paul's answer is love. He says we're to show love toward one another. Treat one another in love. All right? So those who are weak in faith ought not to look upon those who are strong in faith with a despising attitude. Those who are strong in faith ought not look upon the weak in a judgmental way. And then Paul deals with the question of stumbling blocks. And his answer here here is that the Lord is the authority. And because the Lord is the authority, you don't induce a brother to sin by substituting your conscience for his. All right? Now, you're in a church situation. Two parties are in the church. One scrupulous about doing something. The other's unscrupulous. The principles that Paul has taught us are, first of all, that neither party should despise the other. Secondly, those who are unscrupulous have the favor of the apostle. But thirdly, those who are unscrupulous must not present a stumbling block to the scrupulous. That is, those who believe it's all right to eat the meats ought not to become an inducement to sin for those who don't believe in eating the meats. And that's just because the Lord is the ultimate moral authority. You see how the key to all of this is the lordship of Christ. The Lord is the authority. Because the Lord is the authority, the conscience of the weaker brother cannot judge the unscrupulous brother. Because the Lord is the authority, you don't have the right to judge one another. Your attitude should be loving them. And because the Lord is the authority, you don't present a stumbling block to your weaker brother. Now, I want to stress this lordship of Christ in the Adiaphora debate, because, ironically, in modern discussions of Adiaphora, it's just the opposite conclusion that people are driven to so often. The conclusion is that since there is a weaker brother who will stumble into sin, his conscience can lord it over yours. And therefore, there are more commandments than the Bible actually contains because you must be respectful toward your weaker brother. That is, you must honor his moral standards lest he be offended, lest you present a stumbling block to him. And there you don't have the lordship of Jesus Christ in ethics. There you have the lordship of some other man's conscience. And that does violate Christian liberty. I'm going to illustrate this with an issue that is not Adiaphora at all, that is usually considered the key point of Adiaphora today, and that's drinking alcoholic beverages. 
I do so fully understanding the southern environment in which I'm saying these things, but I hope that I can be consistent with what I taught you about being free from the commandments of men and I can be free to speak on this subject from what I believe to be the Word of God. Is the drinking of alcoholic beverages a question of adiaphora? No, it is not. Because adiaphora pertains to those things which Scripture doesn't say one thing or another about, right? Now, obviously, it, it says something about every action, but it doesn't explicitly command or prohibit doing X. But drinking alcoholic beverages is explicitly mentioned in the Bible. And what is explicitly mentioned is that drunkenness is wrong and that alcoholic beverages have been given for the joy of man and ought to be taken when necessary even for the good of man's health. Timothy was commanded by Paul to take wine for his stomach's sake. I don't believe there is any medical support. Maybe I can be corrected by some of those who uh, are in the audience. I don't think there's any medical support for the idea that grape juice would have been all that good for Paul's ailment, whatever they would have been. Moreover, that word that Paul uses, speaking of Timothy, uh, taking wine for his stomach's sake, is the same word that is used when he says, be not drunk with wine. So it was alcoholic wine that he commanded Timothy to take. The Proverbs commend wine as being bringing uh, joy to the heart of man. So alcohol is not adiaphora. The Bible has a lot to say about it. Don't be drunk with it. On the other hand, rejoice in God's good gift at this point. Moreover, in the institution of the Lord's Supper, it is wine that Jesus used to typify his blood. If it were evil to drink wine, then what you have is Jesus instituting in the very, you know, sacramental observance of his church, sin. And so, I don't think we can have any brief for the argument that the Bible is against drinking in moderation. It is not. In fact, if you look at 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 5, you'll, 1 to 5, you'll find a very telling teaching on this very subject. But the Spirit saith expressly that in latter times some shall fall away from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons through the hypocrisy of men that speak lies, branded in their own conscience as with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God created to be received with thanksgiving by them that believe and know the truth. For every creature of God, every creation of God, is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified through the word of God in prayer. Everything is to be received with joy, with thanksgiving, as long as it's sanctified through the word of God in prayer, as long as it's set apart for the Lord's service according to the dictates of the word of God and with a prayerful spirit. And those who say you must abstain from these good gifts of God, Paul says, are teaching doctrines of demons. It's a very serious thing today, this attitude of total abstinence. Of course, drunkenness is a very serious thing too. And uh, when we get to the sixth commandment, I'll be dealing with drunkenness and I'll be saying some things that are equally strong about that. But the attitude that you can take any good gift of God because it's abused and set up an ethical standard going above the scripture and beyond the scripture against that so that it cannot be used and uh, received with thanksgiving, sanctified by the word of God in prayer, is to teach demonic doctrine, Paul says. All right, let me move on. For those who think that alcohol is a, a question of offered today, you have a problem that... Um, those who believe in having, let's, let's just use this as our example, a glass of wine with your dinner, okay? I'm not saying that's the only proper use of alcoholic beverages, but I think it's one that everybody will grant is very likely not a source of drunkenness, okay? Just uh, a glass of wine with your dinner. Somebody says, 
you ought not to have a glass of wine with your dinner because in so doing you will present an offense to your brother who doesn't believe in drinking. The assumption here is that my brother is the weaker brother. Jay Adams has said, I think, rather tongue-in-cheek, weaker brother? He's not the weaker brother, he's the stronger brother. If he's not tempted to have anything to drink, he thinks it's terrible. <laughs> and so, I mean, here's a person who you're not presenting a stumbling block to, he's going to stand back in horror at the idea. You're not inducing him to sin at all. And so, the, I mean, these passages of Scripture don't apply even if you forget the fact that the Bible says something very definite about drinking and about abstaining mm -hmm. from God's good gifts and all that. But now, more importantly, when somebody says, it is offensive to me that you drink, you must note that that use of the word offensive is not a biblical use of the word offensive. At least it's not very often. I doubt that it is in even 1% of the cases. By offensive, the person means you're doing something which I don't like. It's offensive to me. That is, I don't like it. But offense in the Bible means to present a stumbling block, which means you, in the Greek, scandalize. A scandalon, the Greek word for scandalon, was the word used for a stick that you prop up a box with so that you can catch a bird. You ever caught a bird by doing that? And you prop it up with a ruler or something, and when the bird walks in to get the seed, its tail knocks the stick down, and the box comes down on it. That's a scandalon, that stick. It's a stumbling block, you see? And by presenting a, an offense to your brother, you are making him stumble into sin. You're ensnaring him. Now, when a person tells you, you offend me because you drink, he's not saying, you're making me fall into sin. Unless he means, you're making me fall into the sin of judging you. But you see, if it's a sin to judge him, then he ought to be giving up that sin rather than me giving up the drinking. Okay, you see what I'm getting at? Alcohol has nothing to do with Adiaphora today. But now let me give you a situation where it might. Let's get down to that less than 1%, where it might become a scandal on. Not when somebody says, this is offensive to my upbringing, or I don't believe the Bible allows for drinking at all, or somebody says, I just don't like it. But how about a person who, wrongly enough, as the scripture, but genuinely believes drinking is wrong. He's been brought up in a church that teaches that and has not been freed from that commandment of men to the, uh, to the full teaching of the standards of God's word. And that person comes along, and you're going to have a glass of wine for dinner. I realize this is a, a really a long shot, but I want to show you the principles of Adiaphor applying even to this, if I can. And you say to the person, oh, well, drinking's not wrong. I mean, you've got, it's drunkenness that's wrong, not drinking. And so why don't you go, go ahead and have this glass of wine. We all enjoy it. You have it, too. And the person says, but it, uh, I'm open and I'm teachable, and I'd like to look into it, but I'm just not convinced. I mean... I've had you know, 30 years of upbringing. My, my parents and my pastor and my denomination all condemn drinking. We're a total abstinence church, and I just, I just can't believe that it's right to do it. And you say, well, now look, I'm a Christian. I'm being sanctified day by day. I'm mature. We're growing in the Lord. We're going to have some wine. Why don't you have some wine, too? And the person then has some wine, and every time he sips the wine, he thinks that he is drinking damnation to himself because he's violating the standards of God's word. You have then, you see, become a scandal onto the person, not because of the wine, because you've taught him that your conscience can lord it over his. See, that's the beauty of Paul's teaching about Adiaphora. Either party can lord it over the other. 
with respect to the more genuine issue of eating meats. If the uh, weaker party says, we shouldn't eat these meats offered to idols, and therefore you can't eat these meats offered to idols, their conscience is lording it over yours, the stronger brother. On the other hand, if you, the stronger brother, say, now look, you're just wrong on this thing. We're all going to have a party. We're going to be eating these, eat, these meats offered to idols. You come to our party, you eat too. And the person's not convinced. Then he violates his conscience. And it's in that very context that Paul says in Romans 14, whatever is not of faith is sin. Whatever a man cannot do with confidence, cannot believe that it is right, whatever a man, whenever a man does that which is contrary to his conscience, it's sinful to him. So then, if a person were to have these scruples against drinking, and you forced him to drink contrary to his conscience, or induced him to do that which he felt was sinful, then you would present a stumbling block to him. Well, I'm going to leave it at that. What questions might you have? Okay, I would like to just bring up a personal example, and that you could hear Justin on, maybe help us understand, help me understand it a little bit better. Um, as a new Christian, I was converted out of a, a drug background. Okay. And some of my Christian brothers uh, enjoyed smoking pipes. However, their smoking pipes reminded me of smoking another kind of pipe and was something that, excuse my words, but it was an offense to me and I felt causing me uh, to desire what I had. So mm -hmm. I would either leave the room or ask them to stop. Now, what's your judgment on a situation like that? Well, they would have to look at more detail what you mean by it was an offense to you. Well, I felt tempted uh, to go back out to, to what I had been accustomed to because it, it just clicked and it was like have, a habit I had formed and everything just sort of went that way. I overcame that eventually. But. Mm -hmm. um, now these, these Christian brothers that you were upset with were not smoking pot? No. no. Okay. But the very fact that they were smoking reminded you of that which was wrong, and you were tempted to do it. But I'm trying to avoid a way around this, but isn't there an elementary error in that, and that you're being reminded of something becomes the problem? Let's say that a man who was previously a fornicator becomes a Christian, and now the church is having a uh, picnic where there's going to be mixed swimming, and he says, well, you see, mixed swimming reminds me of my former life. Does that mean it's wrong for the church to have mixed swimming? No, it doesn't, but you see, the question is, is it wrong for them to have it with that brother present, or at least, like, I know at times I wish I would have been warned that they were going to smoke their pipe or something, and then I could just go out for a walk, come back, and there wouldn't be any problem. Well, no, wait a minute. I'm not so sure of that conclusion. There wouldn't have been any problem. Why would you have gone out for a walk? Well, because I didn't want these temptations and these thoughts and everything. Okay, but, but you knew why you were going out for a walk. Yeah. So whether you were in the room or whether you were out walking, you knew what they were doing. And if it's their doing it, which reminds you of something else which is sinful and tempts you to do it, what difference does it make whether you're walking or in the room, you're reminded nonetheless. My outlook was not that these, these brethren were terrible, but That's that I had a weakness I had to Okay. That I just couldn't put myself into that temptation, which to me wasn't Well, if it was, and your conscience, you know, uh, wouldn't allow you to be there for fear that you would be tempted beyond that which you were able, then your way of escape was, in fact, to escape and to take a walk. But I don't see that that has anything to do with the rightness or wrongness of their smoking pipe. Because, you see, in fact, taking a walk didn't uh, cause you not to remember what they were doing and thereby remember what you used to do. 
so the remembrance was there and, and the only temptation would have to be in some well, I guess olfactory temptation of some sort what I'm saying is you, you aren't ever to put yourself in a position of, uh, of temptation but the fact that you may have some unique let's just call it a quirk or a previous background that disposes you to be tempted when others wouldn't ordinarily be tempted doesn't cause those who are doing that to be in sin that they are sinning um, Gray? A little bit louder, Greg. Um, he's asking, how do you not become a stumbling block without that person lording it over your conscience? Well, Paul said, all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. And the fact that I forego some pleasure, let's say an example of eating meats offered to idols, we're not going to be able to have our barbecue because some of the people we've invited have this difficulty. I can forego that which would be lawful for me because it's not expedient under the circumstances to present a stumbling block to my brother. I'm not concluding that I cannot eat these things. What I'm concluding is that I ought not to eat them in his presence. Okay? And so therefore, he doesn't lord it over my conscience, but it's just because my conscience is sensitive to the dictates of love that I don't want to cause trouble for him. So if the Lord is the moral authority, I'm not going to induce him to sin. I'm going to refrain from my rights in order that I might show love toward him. That's a genuine example of Adiaphor coming into, into the principles of Adiaphor coming into play. Greg? Getting back to Dale's example, I mean, if someone was aware of what Dale goes through and somebody might have to fight they shouldn't walk in going, hey, let's get Dale loud up. You know, oh, of course not. No, no. No, no, I was speaking to the question of whether... Yeah, that's right. If, if, if they're aware of that fact and uh, uh, they can't, you know, do the education necessary, you know, in a short period of time, they need to grant in patience their brother the time necessary so that it's not a temptation. Oh, okay. Same principle applies to you, an alcoholic. Sure. Sure. If I had reason to believe, now, there's a, there's a lot more in the way of stories than actual fact that circulates and, and this sort of thing, but if I had reason to believe that a person coming to my house for dinner uh, who was previously an alcoholic would in fact be tempted to go into um, uh, excess of drinking just because we had a small glass of uh, wine with dinner, then I would refrain from offering it. Uh, a lot of us are going to be in a position of uh, leadership and uh, it's often been People have approached me with saying, well, you drink now, but when you become a pastor, shouldn't you be the, uh, being a spiritual leader, shouldn't you uh, just quit drinking for the sake of your congregation? Being the pastor, oughtn't you to set an example of weakness of faith for your congregation? <laughs> well, I, I agree. <laughs> I, I don't mean to this. I've heard that over and over and over again, too. I mean, I, I'm very aware of it, and it's not that I disdain the people who say it by any means. It's not a personal thing. But, I mean, the, the reasoning is just so contrary to Scripture. Paul says that those who, uh, who reason this way are weak of faith and lack knowledge, and they need to grow up in the Lord. And those who make it a matter of absolute abstinence as a moral standard are teaching demonic doctrine. That's strong language. You know, there are plenty of things in the Bible where we don't have it that it's demonic when you say these things. But that's one of them. Teaching abstinence where the Lord doesn't teach abstinence is demonic. And we have to be very careful about, you know, saying, well, because I'm going to be the pastor or the teacher, or, you know, I want to be super Christian in this situation, 
that I'm going to become like those who are weak in faith. There's nothing super spiritual about that. No, no, I'm saying they're bound not to do it if, in fact, it will present a stumbling block. They're bound because of the dictate of love, though, not because of some abstinence against, uh, some standard of abstinence against these things. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, in a particular situation, it's not a, in other words, I don't give up whether I do or not, it's not the issue. I mean, people just may not like alcohol, too, but, I mean, a person doesn't give up alcohol in general just because one of his Christian friends is still trying to mature in, in, in his faith so that he's not tempted in that way. Uh, but in that particular situation, what I'm saying is the reason one ought not to drink or to eat the meats offered to idols or smoke or whatever is not because those things are wrong in themselves, but because it's a violation of love. And we always have an obligation to love each other. And therefore, if there's a genuine offense there out of love, I don't do it. Does that make sense? That way, he's not lording it over my conscience, saying that I ought not, but it's a matter of expediency. I don't do it. Not that I don't have the right to do it. I don't do it because of the dictates of love. Suppose a missionary was going to a, a tribe where uh, the color red was considered immoral, and nobody wore red, and he had several red shirts in his wardrobe. Should he wear those or abstain? What color shirt do you have on there? I'm okay, I think. All right. Um, Yes, I believe until the time... Now, this is not a matter of moral obligation with respect to red shirts, but in order that they might listen to the gospel and might um, then learn that it's will worship to say that red shirts are immoral, um, I suppose that the person ought to refrain from wearing red shirts until he can make that point. In a sense, you're going into a situation where there's a poisoned well, right? Uh, there's no way you can, you can get to the conclusion of your argument when you can't even start arguing with these people because you've already got a red shirt on. Wasn't well, that something with parallel to that to the question Jerry was asking about pastors going into a, a small Bible Belt town where, you know, if they see him with a glass of wine the first day, that's going to change. I mean, they may not be Christians, even the active people in the church who are totally opposed to the use of alcohol and beverages. Uh, and he knows that's going to turn them off. They ought to let me know he in the corporate. Would that not be a, a basic for thing, at least in, in, around there? <laughs> I'm really not sure. And we're talking about hypocrites here, right? Or probably just say, say, say pagan, but some of them would be pagan. Are they members of the church? Well, then they're hypocrites, because they're members of the yeah. church and are in fact pagan. Um, let's put it this way. I think that it may be judicious of a person and not to flaunt something that is going to keep those who need to hear the gospel from hearing it. Um, but on the other hand, to give up the principles of the gospel in order that you might win somebody to the gospel in the end is a compromise of its own nature. I mean, that's like saying that uh, you know, a young girl can go ahead and marry this uh, unbelieving uh, fiancé because um, she might win him to the gospel in so doing. And, and if she says that she can't because her religious convictions won't allow her, then he might be offended and say, well, that's the kind of religion you have and I want nothing of it and never you know, become a Christian. Um, the problem is, my counterexample keeps me from wanting to compromise the principles of the gospel before hypocrites, and your counterexample, I think, is a legitimate one showing that we ought not to prejudice, you know, the very hearing of the gospel and those who need to hear it, and then learn that they were wrong to hold those standards. Um, and just because you have those two counterexamples pulling each way, I think it's probably a matter of judgment as to the individual situation. In other words, um, 
one has got to have that wisdom to see as that we talked about previously. Is this a situation where hypocrites are in fact needing to be confronted or a situation where those who don't know better need to have some time and then be taught better? You know what Martin Luther's attitude was toward that though? Luther said anybody, and he's talking about the Roman Catholics in particular, just their traditions, he said any time a person had a scruple which went beyond the word of God, you were under moral obligation to violate it. <laughs> I don't agree with him on that. Yeah, that's right. You notice Luther had to hide away in castles a lot. <laughs> I was going to say in terms of the example that Martin gave, there's a difference between abstaining uh, itself uh, temporarily or people's presence, even if it is for long term, and joining in with the accusations of the others. See the name of others. If you're abstaining from from drink, and then someone else comes up to you and says, should I drink? Now, if you said, no, you shouldn't, in order to, to win mm -hmm. the table, at that time you compromise. But if you say, well, no, no, there's nothing wrong with drinking in itself, and you explain things. Um, in my case, I'm not drinking because these people would put stuff so I think it's fine. You understand what I mean? There's a difference between joining in with yes. their accusations. Yes, there is. And, uh, and of course, actually going in, in, in Nikki's case, I'm sure the, the comeback would be, now if you tell somebody that it's all right to drink, but that you're not doing it for such and such, and that word gets out, then of course you've shot it, too. And nobody's going to listen to you. I'm not, I'm, oh boy. There is something very legitimate about that. I mean, the idea of not poisoning the well with your hearers. I, I don't wish to deny that for a moment, but there's something very insidious about compromising the gospel before hypocrites that the Bible is not allowed to. Um, but in his case, I'm, sure that, I'm sure that Luther would have argued, you know, there's something to going in there and just letting the apple cart be upset and find those who truly have the work of the Spirit in their, in their lives. But, uh, boy, when you're talking about the eternal destinies of men because it's something you would do, you want to be very careful. All right. Don? Um, I about Well, now, something tells me that isn't the question you really want to ask. You're not asking whether I've done any medical research. You're asking whether there is medical research that's been done and what my feeling is toward it. Well, my feeling is that the Apostle Paul wrote under divine inspiration. And certainly the one who inspired him knew the effects of alcohol. And consequently, if it was all right for Timothy to take some for his stomach's sake, um, I think that it must be allowed, even if somebody were to say it does destroy brain cells. And now you want to raise a further question is there a difference between fermented um, grape juice, wine, and hard liquor? And on that question, I, um, I know some things, but I, I'm not sure that I want to get into discussion of it because it's not going to get us anywhere. Uh, my feeling is that the difference between wine and, and distilled um, uh, liquor today is simply a matter of culture and not a matter of category. That is to say, in Paul's day, his discussion of alcoholic beverages was a discussion in terms of wine because that was the prevailing alcoholic beverage. I don't think that the fact that he fails to mention um, whiskey uh, means that he excludes whiskey from the endorsement given to wine. It's a matter of uh, culture, not a matter of moral category then. Because I don't see that you can put uh, some alcoholic beverages into one category and, and some others into another. If you were to do that, Don, that would be an extra scriptural argument, wouldn't it? Now, of course, you could make that a proper extra-scriptural argument if you said the Sixth Commandment prohibits anything detrimental to human health. It's been proven beyond any, you know, reasonable doubt that um, 
99 proof whiskey is detrimental to human health because it destroys brain cells, consequently one must not drink whiskey. But in doing that, you've got to have beyond reasonable doubt in your second premise, too. Okay? Smoke marijuana from down? If marijuana was created to be smoked, yes. Next question. <laughs> I really didn't want to dismiss it that quickly. The answer is that Paul said all creation, everything created, it has its proper use. The hemp plant has its proper use. It might be that it's for making rope rather than making cigarettes. Um, but that's a question that has to be discerned in terms of uh, studying creation and, and um, it's not something that the Bible answers directly. But mar we, we must rejoice even that God allowed marijuana to be created. Now finding the proper use of marijuana is something that goes beyond the province of what I'm speaking on right now. I might get to that in the later lectures. Thank you. Well, I I think in a subordinate way you can bring up the question of what the current status of the state law is. But no, when I've dealt with marijuana, and I'm going to eventually get into it anyway, I guess now, I've dealt with it on the basis of what are the known facts of marijuana usage. And um, you can be very sure that if we have, and I believe we do have, legitimate grounds for saying that smoking is detrimental to one's health, and we have 13 times as many grounds for talking about marijuana being detrimental. You smoke a cigarette, Sam? How do you I believe that smoking cigarettes, if it's detrimental to your health, is a sense. So I believe that it's possible to smoke in moderation so that it's not detrimental to your health. The problem is a good number and very close friends of mine who believe that because the body offer in moderation don't practice moderation and so in fact are hurting their health and um, i mean i don't want to be the moral pope and bind their conscience but what i'm saying is that they know the truth that it's innate and they usually do they admit the chain smoking is detrimental to their health then they are bound by the sixth commandment to give it up why you, why you do it, why you do it in the first place. Well, let me play the devil's advocate, if that's a fair title to use here. What if the person says, uh, well, you know, my dad comes home from, you know, working 12 hours, you know, at work, and he has a glass of wine with dinner, and I come home from school and under certain, under similar circumstances and with the same goals in mind to glorify God and to be relaxed by a, a marijuana joint. Well, if, if, I, if I had money every day, if I had to have something, Oh, now we're talking about addiction. Well, I mean, what, what if the father says, I don't have to have a glass of wine, it's just convenient to do so, and I enjoy it. And the child says, or the, the teenager says, I likewise, that's, that's my way of doing it too. I don't have to. Um, in a sense, I, because of the shortness of time, I probably shouldn't have done this, but you say I tackled this issue of body offer by taking an awful lot for granted. For instance, that we realize that anything that's detrimental to your health has got moral strictures against it. That which is habitual and therefore you're enslaved to something uh, has strictures against it and those sorts of things. And, I, and the question and answers, I'm bringing up a lot of these things, but I, I was assuming all along that. We're talking about here a use of marijuana that wouldn't be addictive. Now, I'm not convinced. I was trying to avoid talking about the details of marijuana without uh, my lecture notes on that subject before me. But I am convinced, personally, that marijuana, a very strong medical case can be made against marijuana. Very strong. 
And so I'm not sure that it was created with smoke. Well, I said the head is if somebody could show that that is the proper use, and of course it's all right. But I don't think it is. Um, I've always appealed to the, um, the sense that we have to be filled with wine, and I know from experience that being high in marijuana and very foreign to me is not with wine. There's no halfway. Yeah, I mean, you're either there or you aren't. And, uh, <laughs> and is that a valid argument in your estimation for what I've always used? It's a, now, you know the difference between a valid argument and a cogent argument? It may be valid, but I'm not sure that it's cogent. That is to say, it may be questionable in the second premise that, in fact, there is no halfway. After a good deal of research and talking to people about it, I think there could be a case made for the fact that some people operate pretty normally under marijuana. The difficulty here, as you can see, well, okay, then we must, we must wage the battle of facts on the level of the second premise, the factual premise. We all agree that if drunkenness is involved, that it's wrong. Now the issue is, is drunkenness involved? And when it comes to something that's an extra scriptural premise, you see, that's why I can't say to somebody, smoking is itself sinful, because in fact I know that moderate smoking is not. Chain smoking is, all right? And so now where a person crosses that line between moderation and chain smoking is a question that I can't dictate to him. And uh, whether there is, in fact, a room for the smoking of marijuana that only makes you just gradually relaxed and not, you know, really out of it, is a factual question that cannot be dictated as though we were inspired in what we said in our conclusions. And that's all I'm getting at. I just want a due caution about that. I'm not saying I accept this counter-evidence. I'm just saying there are plenty who would argue con contrary to what you were saying. The uh, Highway Department Department of Safety says that even one drink can you know, affect your driving, okay? So I was curious as to what is the physical standard for uh, developing a moderate policy of doing any of these audiophiles? That's what I told Dale, that no man or agency can dictate infallibly the conclusion of that second premise. And I, for one, would vehemently dispute the highway department if they said that one glass of wine affects your driving ability. But, um, you see, what you have there is a situation where it is expedient to them to overemphasize and to, if you will, overstate their case uh, for the sake of not having anybody drive who has been drinking at all. Um, and just because I don't want to be the one who says what number is appropriate for any individual, because in fact it varies from individual to individual, um, I don't get too much up in arms because I understand the thrust of those commercials and, uh, and those statements as to their literal um, accuracy, I think that's not right. Well now, in these questions, what is the, what are the two principles here to remember? The ubiquity of ethics and the sufficiency of scripture. Not the sufficiency of what I've said about the highway department or about marijuana or about anything else. Okay? So please don't make me a moral pope tonight and, and live according to my conclusions in these matters but live according to the principles that I think are taken from God's word on these matters. Scripture is sufficient. And the standard, if, if you're applying an extra-scriptural standard to a scriptural standard to draw out a conclusion, then just remember there's room for dispute in any human extra-scriptural standard. Okay? But now being, the fact that there's room for dispute, that, is, that we're all fallible, doesn't mean that you can never have an overwhelming factual case. But it's the factual case that must be argued, and not a scriptural one. Oh, we're way over time now on this uh, about situationism. 
I have about 10 pages of notes, and I'm going to give it to you in a couple of sentences. Joseph Fletcher maintains that there are no rules at all in Christian ethics, that the only standard is that of love. And what love dictates from situation to situation can be different. There are no rules at all. All right. If he says that we are not to ever make a moral decision on the basis of a rule, because there are no rules at all, then what he has said is self-refuting. Because what he's saying is, at least the rule that there are no rules must be observed. Uh, secondly, we must ask him what the source of that claim is. How does he know there are no rules? Has he examined every conceivable human situation to find out that there is no absolute rule that applies to every one of them? No. Well, lacking omniscience, how does he know there are no rules? Well, if he doesn't know there are no rules, then he, in fact, is laying down a rule on his own authority, not on the authority of the facts or the authority of God's revelation. And therefore, what we have here is a form of legalism. Man playing God, laying down his own rules in the place of God's rules. And since Joseph Fletcher believes there are no rules, being thereby an antinomian, when he lays down his own rule, which is a form of legalism, what Joseph Fletcher's school of ethics amounts to is legalistic antinomianism. I realize that's very quick, but that concludes, I mean that very seriously. And his system is absolutely uh, impossible, has internal contradictions that are glaring. Well, how about his positive principle of love? First of all, note the emptiness of that principle. For Fletcher, the notion of love has no definable content, contrary to scripture, where we learn love is keeping God's commandments. You see, love is compatible with anything from situation to situation, and therefore it has no content at all if it's compatible with everything. And if it's compatible with everything, then of course you can do some very unloving things in the name of love, can't you? So we believe that communists that come to town because of our situation ethic have the right, out of love to them and the dignity of human beings, to have a soapbox and free speech. Okay? Now I'm not saying whether I believe that or not, but Fletcher believes that. He believes that communists ought to have free speech in our society. But now if somebody were to say a segregationist who comes to your town who's stirring up the masses against some race uh, can be killed because it's unloving what he's saying, you got a very interesting use of the principle of love. In the name of love, we can kill those who are unloving. All right? Now what I'm saying is, given a certain situation, Fletcher would have to grant that because his notion of love has no definable content. And therefore, his notion of love allows for some very unloving things to be done. And so antinomian legalism, which is in fact open to very unloving and cruel behavior, is what Fletcher allows. And my point is then that Fletcher doesn't even accomplish the ends that he lays out for himself. But then finally, the scripture says that Fletcher has an improper view of love because love means keeping God's law. The scripture says Fletcher has a very improper view of law because law is ordained into life. And Fletcher says it's the way of death. He doesn't mean in the Pauline sense, he means that anybody who pays attention to legal details is, uh, is really uh, shot when it comes to moral principles. And Fletcher also has an improper view of the goal of ethics, that is to say, the facts of our situation. Because when you take into account the facts of our situation, as we've seen already, that leads us to honor the law of God. The answer to Joseph Fletcher then is that triangle. I can think each one of the three angles of the triangle uh, refutes Fletcher. All right, and that brings us to our, I really hate the situation ethics being such a big thing today, we dismiss it in five minutes. Uh, what I'll do when we come back is talk about hierarchicalism for another five minutes and then we'll just really have to get on to social ethics.